welcome to the final Mountain Money Show of 2022. My name is Allison Kubo, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Mountain Money, along with Doug Wells and Roger Goldman. This past year, we've had the opportunity to interview authors of 28 books that were released in 2022. Many of those books have been included on lists of best business books of the year. For today's episode, I compiled clips from five author interviews on the best of lists. The book topics include venture capitalism, influences of consulting firms, maritime hijacking, and more. I'm very excited to share these interviews with you again today. The first book included in our 2022 year-end review is Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Roger Goldman and I spoke with the authors Matthew Campbell and Kit Chalel on July 13th. In the summer of 2011, the oil tanker Bullante Virtuoso was sailing the dangerous waters off the coast of Yemen when it was, ostensibly, attacked by pirates. But the pirates didn't seek to hold the tanker for ransom or to steal the millions of dollars in cargo it was carrying. Instead, the ship was little blaze, leaving its owner with a burned out hulk and a series of insurance claims. So why would the pirates act in such an irrational fashion? That is, of course, because these pirates were no more genuine than Johnny Depp. In fact, the story of the Brillante Virtuoso is one of international intrigue in the surprisingly corrupt world of international shipping and the insurers that make the critical business possible. The story involves murder, corruption, and a surprising lack of consequences to the wrongdoers by the international legal system. The story is laid out in detail by Bloomberg reporters Matthew Campbell and Kit Shalow in their new book, Dead in the Water. We are lucky to be able to spend some time with them this morning. Welcome to Mountain Money. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Can we start with a bit of an overview? What happened on that day in 2011 when the, when the uh, vessel was attacked? So this was um, this was way back in a period which was marked by heavy pirate activity off the coast of Somalia. <clears throat> there was a vessel attacked or an attempted attack every every two or three days, and so the Brillante Virtuoso proceeded through the Suez Canal into this area that was known for being extremely dangerous. And for reasons that didn't become clear until much later, the vessel and its captain decided to stop just off the coast of uh, Yemen, which is close to Somali waters, uh, to wait for a security team. And so it just waited overnight, um, drifting with its lights on. And sure enough, at around midnight, uh, the watchman on deck saw a, a small vessel approaching very fast, and it contained a number of men carrying long rifles and wearing masks. Um, they, the men of the little vessel claimed to be security, but once they were aboard, they, they hijacked the ship, pointed guns at everyone, locked the crew in a TV room, and then eventually uh, set off an explosion in the engine room and fled. Um, all the sailors managed to escape. They were rescued by a US naval vessel that was patrolling nearby. Um, and the pirates disappeared into thin air. And you know the, the nature of the attack was so strange and unusual that right from the start, everyone involved had suspicions that, you know, this 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 might not have been real pirates. They they didn't behave like Somali pirates. They didn't try and ransom the vessel. Um, they didn't try and sail it back to Somalia. They just burned it and fled. And so that set off a process really that is still going on to this day of, of trying to unravel why a ship owner uh, or why uh, you know anyone would set fire to a vessel carrying. A million barrels of oil. Because these vessels carry so much in value, 
there's certain pieces that need to be put in place in order for them to even just be able to ship. And so whether they're, you know, struck by pirates or there's some other things, you know, there's a role that Lloyd's plays in, uh, Lloyd's of London plays in the world of international shipping. Let's start with first, you know, how did it become involved with the Brillante Virtuoso? So as you can imagine, uh, in any business like shipping where you have these very valuable assets, in some cases carrying for the largest container vessels a billion dollars of cargo and, and then hundreds of millions more in value for the ship itself. There is a need for insurance. Uh, things go wrong at sea all the time. Uh, shipwrecks are surprisingly common. And for about 300 years now, the place, the, the foremost place in the world to get shipping insurance has been uh, Lloyd's of London which uh, most of us know uh, has something to do with insurance, but, but in fact, contrary to popular belief, is actually not itself an insurer. It's, it's more like a, a market. It's kind of a stock exchange for risk where real insurers, Prudential, AIG, all the names we're familiar with, come to slice and dice exposure to different liabilities. And, and the whole goal of Lloyd's is to subdivide the risk on any one asset. So, you know, there might be 20 or 30 insurers ultimately uh, holding the bag in the case of a big marine accident. And so the loss will not be catastrophic for any one of them. So the Berlante, like so many, and, and indeed the great majority of, of large commercial vessels, was insured at Lloyd's. And when it was virtually destroyed in the Gulf of Aden, Lloyd's had to swing into action. And they start to swing into action because they're going to obviously be out for uh, millions, millions of dollars for the vessel, for the cargo. And I, as, as I understand it, there were different insurers for different pieces of this. Obviously, people want to know whether this is legitimate. So enter the role of one David Mockett. Tell us a little bit about him. So David Mockett was a British expat who lived in the Middle East for much of his adult life. More re most recently at the time that we write about and living in Aden in southern Yemen, which is the, the main port city in Yemen. And David worked as something called a marine surveyor. And just as if uh, you have a tree fall on your garage, the insurance company needs to send someone to, to check out the accident, make an estimate of the damage, uh, make sure that the tree did actually fall on your garage. Uh, that's what David did just on, on enormous scale. So he would be dispatched to vessels that had been damaged or, or sunk uh, in some marine calamity or go check out a dock that had been uh, crashed into, things like that, assess the damage, make sure that the story that was being told by the claimant stacked up and, and then send a report off to London and, and all being well, uh, insurance, insurance claims would then be paid out. So David got the call on the Brillante uh, he boarded the vessel, he checked it out, went bow to stern in great detail, took a lot of notes, took a lot of photographs. And he began to think pretty much from day one, or really from, from hour one, that there was something off about this story. He didn't really know what it was. He, he didn't have any firm ideas of what it was that bothered him about it. But he did have a sense that things were not stacking up. And he expressed those doubts to others uh, in Aden. He uh, sent reports up to London that were being circulated widely within the marine community. And uh, exactly two weeks after the attack on the Berlante, as he was still working to, to prove out these doubts, uh, David climbed into his car outside his office in, in Yemen, 
uh, turned the key, drove a short distance onto a busy road, and was killed by a bomb that had been placed under the driver's seat. That, the incident where, you know, David is, is killed from a bomb really starts to, you know, for some, show that this is a, a dangerous situation, or, or perhaps, I would say that when reading the book, it felt like, you know, it wasn't 100% sure at all that this was related to his look at the boat. Um, Richard Veal and Michael Connor, can you tell us a bit about them and what their role in the investigation was? Yes, Richard Veal and Michael Connor, I, I guess, are the are sort of closest we have to to hero, to the heroes of this story, um, in that they are ultimately the ones who who really make a concerted effort to unravel the fraud, and also look at what happened to David Mockett. Um, they are two former London police detectives. Uh, they speak with sort of yeah Cockney accents. They swear profusely. They're great. They're like characters from a seventies cop show. Um, and they, they quit the police force and got into this lucrative business of private investigations where lawyers and insurers will hire them to use their detective skills to get to the bottom of incidents that they need to understand better. So they were brought in to look at the Brillante Virtuoso case, and they ended up spending years and years and years pulling at threads, um, you know, going all over the world, seeking out eyewitnesses. And they had some remarkable scrapes along the way. Um, and really, I think they're, they're the ones who hold a good degree of the credit for ultimately, you know, it, what we know about the, the fraud that took place and how, how well we understand it now. With all the money that was at stake or is at stake during this, why has Lloyd's traditionally been so unwilling to aggressively take on this behavior? It almost felt like in the book that they weren't, you know, um, a driving force necessarily behind trying to find the answers. Um, it felt like others maybe had more passion about this. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think to understand it, you've got to really look at what Lloyd's is and what it does. Lloyd's is uh, an internationally uh, relevant uh, and important finance institution. And its job is to be a sort of shock absorber for, for the world economy when things go terribly wrong. Lloyd's is there to, to absorb some of the damage. Um, so it's vital that it does its job. But, but Lloyd's has also always been a source of wealth for its members. Insurance is a, is a hugely lucrative business, always has been. And for, for a few hundred years, it's been a steady stream of income for the British upper, upper and middle classes. Uh, in, in more recent years, it's been, a, it's been a fantastic source of income for multinational insurance corporations. And, you know, like all elite systems, the members of, the, of, of those systems are interested in preserving their power and their privilege and they've done that very successfully right up until the present day but you know unfortunately for everyone else that means they're not particularly incentivized to face up to 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 gangsters and criminals it's their job to make money and that's what they do so the tendency at lloyd's and this is this has been true throughout history is to look the other way is to, is to pay a bit of money to insurance claims that are probably dodgy um and that's made made marine insurance really a perfect breeding ground for criminals and I take it that's because they think that if they uh, look the other way this time, they're more likely to get the business the next time. In other words, that it's the preservation of the income flow that causes them to do this slightly corrupt approach to in dodgy insurance claims. Is that fair, Matthew? That's basically right. This is Lloyd's is a phenomenally profitable institution, uh, and uh, 
for the most part, although there have, there have been uh, times where, where there have been exceptions to this, for the most part, Lloyd's insurers do extremely well. So uh, paying out uh, some questionable claims now and then doesn't have a huge impact on the bottom line. And, and yes, as you, as you say, uh, accusing your clients of fraud is not a great way to get them to come back next time. And uh, something that, that came up periodically in the Berlante case uh, when insurers would be asked why they weren't fighting harder, why they weren't uh, making a more serious effort to combat, you know, what, what was clear to a lot of people was fraud. Uh, the answer would be something like, well, we don't want to get a reputation for being difficult. Or, uh, you know, we don't want to get into messy legal situations that we're not sure that we can win and which are, of course, expensive. So uh, the path of least resistance is often just to pay. We've been speaking with Matthew Campbell and Kit Shalel about their new book, Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be here. Co-author Michael Forsythe of When McKinsey Comes to Town, the hidden influence of the world's most powerful consulting firm, spent time discussing the book with Doug Wells and Roger Goldman on October 17th. A former McKinsey consultant once wrote, to those convinced that a secretive cabal controls the world, the usual suspects are Illuminati, lizard people, and globalists. They are wrong. There is, however, McKinsey & Company. McKinsey is more than simply one of the big three consulting companies that newly minted US MBAs flock to. Its reach and influence into the spheres of corporations and governments worldwide is extraordinary. And while it holds itself out as a pillar of rectitude whose actions are carefully monitored to be consistent with a set of high-minded values, the reality of what it does and who it does it for is far different. One fundamental element of McKinsey's culture is its commitment to maintaining the secrets of its clients. And that's why the new book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, by Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth, is so extraordinary. The book is a deep dive into how the company works and who it works for. We're lucky to have Michael with us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. So let's talk about, you know, McKinsey. What motivates you to dig into this particular company and how long did it take to do it? My colleague Walt and I have been working on this for more than four years now. And the motivation was really the secrecy behind the company and its, you know, reach into all the corporate boardrooms in America, almost all of them, uh, and governments around the world, big companies around the world. You know, there's been so many books written like about one company and, their, and that company's influence, but this company influences so many companies around the world and so many governments and does it in this culture of secrecy and when you've got this culture of secrecy, that's just catnip for investigative reporters. So we wanted to find out more. <laughs> catnip for investigative reporters. Love it. Uh, tell the audience, what is a consultant and why is McKinsey such a big deal in that space? Right. So, so McKinsey is the Cadillac, you know, or the Porsche of consultants, the, the biggest management consulting company in the world. And what do consultants go? It's a very good question. They do a lot of things. Uh, one thing maybe a lot of viewers may be familiar with is that they come into companies often and uh, at the request of the CEO or the CFO and suggest uh, job cuts, right sizing, as some of them call it. Uh, they've been doing this. This has been a staple of their work since the 1930s, so almost a century. That's something that people hear about a lot, but they do a lot more than that. Uh, they recommend complete restructurings of companies. They recommend ways for companies to boost sales in certain areas. They do the same for government. And I think 
The big picture of what they do also is that they diffuse knowledge. They learn what they call best practices uh, from the best corporations or the best governments around the world. And they tr they diffuse that knowledge to, uh, to, to other companies, to other governments. Uh, and they do this around the world. You talk about how they diffuse the best practices. They certainly diffuse the most profitable practices. And I wanted to sort of touch on one of those in particular. We, we've often talked on this program in the past about the growth of income inequality. And one of the things that struck me as I read the book was the role McKinsey played with respect to the changes in executive compensation and the growth of outshoring. Can you share a little bit about that with the with our audience? Uh, yeah, it's really extraordinary. So back in 1950, General Motors hired McKinsey to do a study on executive compensation. And this uh, really hotshot partner at McKinsey named Arch Patent found something extraordinary. He discovered that worker pay was actually growing faster than executive pay. Shocking. Uh, and, uh, you know, General Motors hired him. Uh, you know, he published this. He published a lot of his findings also in the Harvard Business Review and in publications like Fortune. Other companies started hiring. McKinsey started hiring this guy, Arch Patton, to do studies for them, recommending ways uh, to uh, to beef up executive compensation. They're there got to be some competition. Some companies felt really bad that their executives were paid so little. So it started to become a race for the top. And it's no exaggeration to say that McKinsey had a very big role in this. You know, back then, the average CEO made about 20 times uh, what the average worker made. We're well over 300 times the average worker at this point. You mentioned Purdue Pharma. This was another story that I found very interesting as I read the book. Uh, you sort of talk about how McKinsey advised the tobacco companies, the vape manufacturers, and even Purdue, while at the same time they're advising the FDA on regulatory issues. This is once again one of these things that, you know, coming from a background as a lawyer, I would have trouble understanding how this could possibly be allowed from a professional ethics perspective in the legal world. But it seems like it happens in the consulting world all the time. Can you share a little bit more about, but having said that, it seems to me that these were kind of extreme examples, advising the FDA on the one hand and Purdue on the other. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that played out and, and why was this allowed by the government? It's amazing. We actually did some interviews with some uh, top FDA officials and, and asked them, did you know that McKinsey also worked for the companies you regulate, the pharmaceutical companies? And in a twist, this is they, they just didn't know. It wasn't something uh, that they knew about. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit about Purdue Pharma. This was the subject of congressional hearings uh, earlier this year. And uh, members of Congress wanted to know the same thing. Why? How can you you know, work at the same time at the for the FDA that you're and you're working at Purdue Pharma and other opioid makers at the same time. And and in fact, uh, what that committee found and what we reported on is that not only did McKinsey work at the same time for Purdue and the FDA, but also some of the same consultants um, and going back and forth between work at the FDA and work at some of these opioid makers. But it also extends to big tobacco. Uh, McKinsey worked for Altria, the you know the maker of the Marlboro Six cigarettes. Until last year, they were working for these, these big tobacco companies. And they worked at the FDA for the Center for Tobacco Products, the, the, the division of the FDA that oversees the tobacco industry. Same with vaping. Uh, you know, they worked for Juul until 2019. Uh, and they were advising uh, the FDA's um, part of the FDA that, that oversees uh, the vaping uh, industry. So, I think maybe the reason it is allowed to happen is because the federal government just 
people in the government just didn't know, uh, you know, at all about it. Uh, and so now they do know, uh, and we'll have to see what happens. You know, another McKinsey involvement that is very well known is the 2008 financial meltdown. I'm not saying McKinsey caused that at all, but they did play a role in the financial engineering surrounding the securitization of mortgages that many say led to or played a significant role in the great financial crisis. Can you share with our audience uh, how they influenced the market in that case? Right. So remember, we talked a little bit about that 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 study in 1950 about compensation that that caught on like wildfire. That, and that's the big thing that these big ideas that McKinsey propagates through the world. So McKinsey didn't invent the idea of asset securitization. You know, this is just the, the bundling up of assets and then selling them off. Um, that wasn't McKinsey's invention, but McKinsey really uh, took off with this idea and wrote you know, one McKinsey partner wrote a book about it. A couple of others ones wrote a book about it. And they spread this idea to their clients, their banking clients, uh, um, their fund managing clients, this idea that you can uh, you can slice and dice assets, sell off portions of it on, you know, on a secondary basis. And we all know uh, what happened in 2008 uh, with the financial crisis, with these crazy exotic securitizations, these collateralized debt obligations. You you know, those those kind of words kind of bring back the shakes for us you know you know who lived through that time and mckinsey you're right they didn't cause the financial crisis but just like with executive compensation they spread the idea they spread the gospel of securitization in a, at a critical time in the 80s and 90s when it was really taking off uh jeffrey skilling the ceo of Enron at the time, former McKinsey senior partner, adapted some of these securitization ideas uh, at Enron. And we all know how that story ended. So it's the power of McKinsey to spread ideas. And some of those ideas uh, have consequences that we just can't foresee. We've enjoyed speaking with you. The book is When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the world's most powerful consulting company. Our guest has been Michael Forsythe. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The third of our five highlighted author interviews is with David Gallus. Roger Goldman and I spent time with David on June 27th, discussing his new book, The Man Who Broke Capitalism, how Jack Welsh gutted the heartland and crushed the soul of corporate America and how to undo his legacy. During the 1980s, the GE We Bring Good Things to Life ads were ubiquitous. But so too was the presence of GE products in American lives. They made the refrigerators and cooking appliances in our homes, the airplane and locomotive engines that transported people and goods, the lights that illuminated the night, the plastics that surrounded us, and medical equipment that prolonged our lives. The company, founded by Thomas Edison in 1892, was a centerpiece of American technological innovation. And it was a place known for company loyalty. Once you got a job at GE, you could expect to work there until you retired. But in 1981, a new day dawned at GE when Jack Welch became the CEO. The first of the modern CEO celebrities, Welch set out to make GE the most valuable company in the world. And he was able to consistently increase stock value and found himself lionized in the business press and by the business academic community. The way Welch achieved his objectives, his techniques of downsizing, of offshoring, reliance on finance and accounting tricks, ultimately led to the GE of today, a mere shadow of its former self. 
The Welsh story is set out in compelling detail in a new book by New York Times reporter David Gellis entitled The Man Who Broke Capitalism, How Jack Welch Gutted the Heartline and Crushed the Soul of Corporate America and How to Undo His Legacy. Good morning, David, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you start with a little bit of background about Welch the man? Who, who was he when he, you know, when, when he took over at GE? Well, Welch had just one job his whole life. He was a GE man from the time he graduated from a university program. And it's important to know that he was ferociously ambitious. He was intensely competitive. He was, by all accounts, enormously smart, often knowing more about the business line than the people actually running those businesses for him. And so he had this combination of bluster, aggression, ambition, and a real lust for trying to make GE a ferociously well-capitalized, highly competitive company. And he achieved exactly what he set out to do. My book acknowledges all that, but also takes a really, really critical look at the consequences of those actions. It's one thing to set out to uh, essentially make a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs said, but you have to reckon with the consequences. And uh, in the book, I explore a lot of the quote-unquote negative externalities, the consequences of this kind of a regime and what it actually did to our economy even today. Can you give us the foundations of what GE was like in terms of product and corporate culture before Welch took over uh, in 1981? Absolutely. It's it's sort of hard to overstate just how influential GE was in the American economic story. Really, for much of the 20th century, it was the company that was essentially the bellwether. Where GE went, so went the country. Not only did it make, as you referenced in the introduction, the toasters, the radios, the televisions, the refrigerators, the washing machines, the jet engines, the power plants, that sort of was the stuff of our everyday lives. But it also had this reputation of being the corporation that other CEOs, other business leaders look to for guidance on how they ought to behave. So when they thought about how they need to structure their relationship with their employees, how they would interact with the government, GE was sort of the role model for other corporations. That all changed when Welch arrived. Rather than being this sort of benevolent corporation, one that made a point of paying its workers well and even paying its taxes, Welch came around and changed all of that in the most abrupt of fashion when he took over the company in 1981. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the way you tie Welch's perspective on shareholder value, stockholder value as sort of the sole objective of the corporation to the writings of Milton Friedman. I don't know if that was explicit or not in Welch's view, but it really does resonate, doesn't it? It's... Important to note that things were changing when Welch took over. And, and inevitably, starting in 1981, the economy was going to change. GE was going to change. It's how he went about crafting that change. And as you say, the sources from which he was deriving his inspiration. And it's undoubtedly clear that Milton Friedman, the economist famously from the University of Chicago, who was active during this same time was an important role model. It was a whole decade before Welch became CEO that Milton Friedman wrote in the New York Times Magazine that the social responsibility of a business 
is to increase its profits. But a whole decade transpired before between Friedman putting that out there and Welch putting it into action. And I don't need to tell you two, there's a huge difference between uh, theory and action. And what was largely theoretical in the age of Milton Friedman during the 1970s, when we still had stagflation, when the economy still wasn't growing, Welch put into action. And indeed, in his autobiography, there's this very telling chat phrase at the end of one of the chapters where he actually parrots Milton Friedman words. And he essentially says the exact same thing, that in his view, the social responsibility of a business is to increase its profits, just like Milton Friedman said. So we see a world where Welch uh, sort of really investigate offshoring. He moves uh, uh, appliance manufacturing to different countries. He 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 is, is always looking for a way to you know minimize cost. The other thing that he does, though, which I thought was sort of again another thing that's really grown around corporate America, is he starts outsourcing any function he could, which limits the number of GE's employees and probably ends up with you know third party contractors who pay less. Can you talk a little bit about that? Without question. I mean, if you work at a big company, the first person you see every day at your office probably doesn't work for you. Those men and women work in the security desk, the men and women in the cafeteria, the men and women cleaning up at the end of the day. All of those people in all likelihood were for third party contractors who almost certainly enjoy substantially lower pay, substantially less desirable benefits and substantially more uh, fickle and contractual employment with their service provider. And that's Welch still with us today. He was the one who in the 1980s said, don't run a cafeteria, let a food company do it. Don't print your own stuff, let a printing company do it. And there's some, there's some rationale to that, right? There are places where you need specialists to do the most specialized of jobs. But in the aggregate, what it resulted in was an economy where a smaller and smaller percentage of our nation's hardworking people were getting a meaningful slice of the wealth created by our nation's largest company. And that is the Jack Welch story writ large. When we talk about income inequality, this is not like the weather, right? This is not some abstract force that just happened. It's the product of individual choices by individuals who run our nation's biggest companies and their own priorities. And Welch was so influential, so powerful for so long, some two decades from 1981 to 2001, that essentially his worldview became adopted as the de facto law of the land in corporate America. One of the things he did, you talked about the wave of mergers and acquisitions and what one executive called a Pac-Man approach. One of the other things he did, of course, was really increase the use of G capital. Talk a little bit about how he did that and, it's, and how it created an ability to sort of hit earnings targets quarter after quarter. I, I mean, GE, as you referenced, was an industrial company when he took over. This was a company that made things. But from the moment he took over, even before I saw some memos that he wrote before he was actually CEO, he understood that this little unit called GE Capital really held the key to making GE the largest company in the world. And what he recognized, and there was again some truth to it, was that finance was about to explode, that the Wall Street and the finance industry in the United States was on the precipice of 
unparalleled expansion and that if GE could be a major player in that, there was really no limit to what they could do. But what did that mean? It meant that over the years, GE got into more and more arcane lending businesses. They were financing auto loans in Thailand. They were buying up portfolios of commercial real estate debt. They were operating high interest credit cards. And by the end of GE Capital, this happened just after Welch retired, but it was the continuation of the strategy he had set in motion. His successor goes ahead and in 2005, buys one of the largest provider of subprime mortgages <laughs> in the country just before the financial crisis. And that's the legacy of what happens when GE became not an industrial company, but a financial engineering company, a company that was essentially a large unregulated bank. And with all that money coursing through GE Capital, indeed, as you referenced, GE's accountants were able to essentially come up with what one analyst called earnings on demand, able to sort of meet or beat analyst expectations for almost 80 quarters in a row, an unprecedented run that when people started looking more closely, almost immediately realized something fishy was going on there. There's no way that a company can actually do that. I encourage people to get the book uh, because the stories are remarkable uh, and it really does give you a lot of insight into why we are where we are as a society. Thank you for spending some time with us, David. As we highlight great interviews of 2022, I include the discussion with Jamie Fiore Higgins regarding her new book, Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. This interview took place on October 24th with Roger Goldman and myself. Perhaps no institution more closely associated with the financial wizardry performed on Wall Street than Goldman Sachs. It is the Tiffany's of investment banks, the firm that young MBAs from the most prestigious business schools in the U.S. and abroad line up to interview with. It prides itself as a paragon of meritocratic capitalism, a place that is successful because it is filled with the best and brightest striving to create positive returns for its clients. And it rewards those hardworking employees with a glittering amount of money. The story of one woman's career at Goldman Sachs is laid out in Jamie Fiore Higgins' new book, Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. The workplace she describes is one that is not only incredibly demanding in terms of time and pressure, but one that is dominated by a bro culture and an atmosphere of misogyny where the reality is far from the protective policies documented on paper. We're very lucky to have Ms. Higgins with us this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Jamie, can you start by sharing a little bit about your background and what drew you to Goldman Sachs in the first place? So I received an undergraduate degree in mathematics from a small women's college in the States in Pennsylvania. And when I was entering my senior year, I was figuring out what I wanted to do next. And I actually wanted to be a social worker. <laughs> And I even took a personality test to the career office that pointed to that as well. But my parents had other plans for me. I can't blame them. They grew up um, in very modest means, pulled themselves out of poverty. And the directive was, we just helped you fund a very expensive college degree and you need to get the best job possible that makes the most money. And in 1998, that was Wall Street. You know, as you read the book, even the intake process sounds a lot pretty intimidating. Can you describe a bit about the interview and orientation process you went through to become a Goldman Sachs employee? 
Sure. So for me, I had 40 interviews for <laughs> zero interviews to get my job at Goldman Sachs. And it was an arduous process. It took months. I was interviewed on campus. Then I was interviewed at the local regional office, which in my case was Philadelphia. Then I was invited to a soup day, which is kind of like speed dating, where I interviewed, um, I faced a long corridor and behind each door were a couple gold professionals and I interviewed for one for 30 minutes, then I moved to the next door and interviewed for 30 minutes, then I moved to the next door and interviewed for 30 minutes. And then finally, at that point, I was deemed Goldman hireable. And then I started interviewing on actual businesses to make sure that I was a good fit for their actual businesses. Now, the irony was, once I got to Goldman, I encountered a lot of people who had only had four or five interviews. And those people, either had parents who worked at Goldman or were neighbors of a Goldman partner or parents were clients of Goldman. So there was definitely different ways to on-ramp to Goldman. And I definitely on-ramped as someone who had zero connections to Wall Street or the firm itself. What else did you see with regards to the culture at Goldman with, um, from people, the difference between people with moneyed backgrounds and those without? Yeah, it was definitely a story of the haves and the have nots. So when I finally got my job and I started at Goldman, I realized pretty soon that it was a punitive system. So for example, on that first day when I went to orientation, they locked the doors at seven o'clock. So if you weren't on the right side of that door, you had to get a signed permission slip from your department partner, which would be equivalent to your like boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss. So it was a very punitive environment. But what I realized early on that a lot of people were fluent in this language of Wall Street. In fact, a lot of the people I worked with had been managing their own portfolio since they were 13, where I was just figuring out what in the world was going on. And so what I found was there was an element of those with connections and those who didn't have connections. For someone like me, I felt like I hit the lottery getting this job. It was like something my parents could have never dreamed that one of their kids had. So to me, I had this, I won the lottery, I had the winning ticket, I didn't wanna lose it. But yeah, for a lot of these kids where the onboarding was so easy, where they were able to just walk in after a couple interviews, they had this laissez-faire attitude like, no matter what they did, they would be protected. And that theme is what I found throughout my career, that if you had the right connections, you were allowed a lot of leeway in terms of your behavior and your production because you had air cover, you were protected. Let's let's talk a little bit about, about the misogyny that is actually you know part of the title of the book. One, one of the things you talk about is how misogynistic behavior was tolerated to the extent that it was accompanied by business production. Can you give us a couple of examples of things you saw that uh, would surprise people in terms of the kind of behavior manifested? Yeah, so I can just give one example of a colleague who assaulted me. Um, I work, he worked for me at the time and I had to change um, his client coverage, the client he was covering, because rumor had it he was having an affair with the client and that wasn't appropriate. So I changed him off the client. I pulled him into an office for a private meeting. He pinned me against the wall, started choking me, told me he wanted to rip my effing face off. It was, as you can imagine, 
a very upsetting situation. Um, luckily, it de-escalated quickly and I was fine. And so the next day I reported it to my manager. And my manager said to me, well, you can report this to HR if you'd like, but I'm not getting rid of him because this gentleman had something better than a 4.0 from Harvard. He was a scratch golfer. And he got my partner and all the other partners onto all the exclusive golf clubs across the country, Pebble Beach, Baltistraw, Augusta. And that allowed our partners to entertain the biggest funds on the street. And so there's a perfect example where, you know, that character, that behavior should have not been tolerated for a hot second. He should have been shown the door, but instead his business contacts and his ability to get people on nice golf courses protected him. Your career ultimately explodes after an incident at a karaoke bar. What happened and how did it lead to the end? So I had said earlier I was really good at keeping my mouth shut, not protecting women who came to me with stories of uh, discrimination and harassment. Well, finally I was out at a client event And my boss at the time used a racial epithet on a person of color who worked at this karaoke bar. And something shifted in me there. It was as if all these years I was living in this dysfunctional family, but nobody saw what was going on. We had this beautiful house on the block and no one knew the craziness that was going on inside. But having it happen in public really showed me how toxic it was. And I said, for the first time, I'm sticking my neck out, I am calling human resources, and I'm making a report because it's the right thing to do. And certainly at Goldman Sachs, they have a whole division for this. And they even had a tagline, if you see something, say something. So I called, I was promised anonymity. And then the next day, like a scene out of The Godfather, my partner pulled me aside and told me I had gone against the family and that he had treated me like a daughter. And by going and talking about what happened within our department to human resources, I have gone against the family. And then just a few months later, during reviews, after over a decade of stellar reviews, year after year after year, my review scores dropped. And I realize now after writing this book, my experience isn't unique. I have heard from hundreds of people, many of them saying, you know, Jamie, your book has really made me feel understood because I made a complaint to HR. Six months later, my review dropped. Six months later, I was fired. And now I'm kind of seeing the pattern. I was never fired. I left on my own, but I knew once I let what was going on in my department see the light of day, they were gonna punish me. We've been talking to author Jamie Fiore Higgins about her new book, Bully Market. It's quite an interesting read, and we've had quite an interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us. Scott Galloway's book, Adrift, America in 100 Charts, did not make many of the best of book lists of 2022. However, it was the interview that generated the most listener feedback of the year. Roger Goldman and I interviewed Scott on October 3rd. In his book, Adrift, America in 100 Charts, Scott Galloway provides a collection of his views on the essential question of America's sputtering progress. What the data has told him is not complicated. America is a work in progress, but it's made the most progress towards its ideals, and it becomes most like itself when it invested in a strong middle class. Here to share his grand economic theory with us through data and charts is Scott Galloway. Scott, thank you for joining us this morning on Mountain Money. Morning. Thanks for having me. 
Let's begin. Do you think America is adrift? And why did you write about it, if so? Yeah, I think that, so didn't call the book Lost. Um, we have, we can see land. We know how to have a progressive tax structure. We know how to have a strong middle class that we invest in. We know how to uh, create connective tissue uh, between Americans. Uh, I just feel like we've been taken a bit off course, but we can see land. We just have to decide to get back to it. I don't think there's anything wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. I think we're adrift. One of the really enjoyable things about this book is that when you pick it up and start flipping through it, there are many, many, many charts and graphs that present data in a way that is pretty compelling and allows you to sort of sort of visualize some things you may have heard about in other contexts in a more sort of intense way. Let's talk about some of those things. First one I want to touch on is something we've touched on before at, at Mountain Money, but one that just seems to come back uh, repeatedly, and that is the notion of the rise of the shareholder class. Talk to us about what that means. Well, throughout American history, every time we became more productive through manufacturing, technology, or management um, philosophy, uh, wages kept track. Or if you look at the curve, or if you look at the line on productivity in the United States and wages, they look like two snakes dancing. They were sort of inextricably wound around another. America became more productive, wages went up. And then something happened in the early 70s where wages, they disarticulated from one another and wages went flat for a good 50 years while productivity is still up and to the right. So we've had tremendous prosperity in America. We just haven't had the progress we'd like to see. And that trillions of dollars represented by surplus benefit between wages and productivity has been captured by one group and simply put it's shareholders. And that is we decided to optimize everything for shareholders. And I don't know if it was shareholder activism or Milton Friedman or just this, this siren call of uh, you know, every CEO should just be totally focused on one stakeholder and that's shareholders. But effectively we have optimized everything for the price of shares. And the incentives around the people who make the decisions is around shares because that's how they get compensated. And the result is that the NASDAQ has quadrupled in the last 13 years. The minimum wage has skyrocketed from 725 to 725. So there's this illusion of complexity that the middle class suffering is a, is a function of a bunch of features that are beyond our control. No, it's not. We purposely have decided not to raise minimum wage. If minimum wage I just kept pace with productivity since the 70s. It'd be about 23 bucks a share right now. So these are, con these are conscious decisions we made. Another area that you highlight in the book is how Americans idolize innovators. We're seduced by their capabilities and blinded to the risks they present. Can you share the data points that you use to illustrate this? Well, if say you started um, an internet uh, photo sharing company or an app and you became the wealthiest tech woman in the world, there's a one in three chance you would be Times Person of the Year next year. About every third year, time decides that the person of the year is the richest tech person, not the richest pharmaceutical person, not the richest auto person, not even the wealthiest businessman, but essentially the richest tech person. I think as a society, and there's evidence of this, as a society becomes wealthier and more educated, its reliance on a super being and church attendance goes down. But our questions get bigger and bigger. And so into that void of, of a lack of a super being or a religion slips in technology because it's the closest thing to kind of mysticism or magic we can imagine. I, uh, my iPhone's amazing, I have no idea how it works. Mm -hmm. So I find it just intoxicating and enthralling. And then you have these individuals who become massively wealthy 
And I would argue that Jesus Christ of our generation that is increasingly not turning to religion is Steve Jobs. And maybe kind of Elon Musk is taking that mantle. Uh, and it's great to have heroes. The problem is they live by a different set of standards than the rest of us. They can commit market manipulation on Twitter. They can call innocent people pedophiles. They can toy with a company like it's a Kong ball, as Elon is with Twitter right now. And we don't hold them to the same standards. Um, Steve Jobs is an incredible person or business person, I'd say, denied his own blood under oath to avoid child support payments when he was worth a quarter of a billion dollars. And I find that the tech innovators and big tech in general live by a different set of standards than the rest of corporate, uh, the rest of corporate America and the rest of the populace. We definitely have an idolatry of innovators. We're just fascinated by technology um, and its leaders. Uh, while taking care to avoid saying words I'm not supposed to on the radio, one of my favorite chapter headings was called, is entitled, The MDMA Dealer of Capitalism is the Corporate Communications Exec. So moving from tech to sort of corporations in general, talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that and a little bit about corporate mission statements. So we've had so many technology companies who are losing money get big so fast and create so much shareholder value that everyone's looking for the next one. And really for the first time uh, in the last few years, about two thirds of companies that have gone public have not been profitable. And it used to be less than a third. And so when you're not profitable and you're going public on kind of a promise as opposed to performance, uh, it becomes more about the narrative than the numbers. So traditionally most stocks traded between a range of their EBITDA and their growth and the sector they were in. You know, automobile companies traded between, let's call it seven and nine times EBITDA. And then if the CEO was seen as a visionary and very you know, likable, you might get closer to nine. And if the CEO wasn't very good at telling a story, closer to a seven. It's been totally flipped. Now it's about 10 to 30% numbers and 70 to 90% narrative. And that is Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. They're so charismatic. The investor letter of Jeff Bezos makes you want to buy stock. Listening to Elon Musk talk about we need to solve, be hopeful instead of just focusing on you know, things that ail us and we need to be an interplanetary species. These are really just compelling stories. And so the ability to shape the narrative has become increasingly important to a company's ability to raise cheap capital and pull the future forward. This has given rise to the public relations executive or the strategic communications executive. And there are more people in public relations and strategic communications at Facebook than there are reporters or journalists at the Washington Post. <laughs> The number of journalists over the last 30 years has been cut in half. The number of PR executives or corporations has gone up sixfold. So the ratio of quote unquote journalism or uh, the ratio I would say of spin to journalism has gone in the wrong direction by 12X. So that leads to the emergence of someone like Adam Newman that's, be able, that's able to create this narrative around building a better world and community when they're just renting desks and creates such a strong narrative, and he is so compelling and charismatic, that people decide to overlook the fact that he's losing $80 million a week with a, a business model that will never make any sense. So there's this, this uh, kind of mecca or l l lollapalooza of strategic communications. It's all about the narrative. And then you have online platforms where people with large followings say something negative about crypto and then see, you know, dozens, thousands of bots weigh in on you and tell you what an idiot you are because you're threatening the narrative. And so it's become a battle of narratives as opposed to a battle of numbers. And I think that's dangerous for investors because it's kind of like who's loudest uh, wins as opposed to numbers, which are just more reliable.
We are just about out of time, and I don't want our listeners to think that uh, Sky Galloway doesn't have some positive prescriptions for how to get to where we need to get to from here, and that's in his last chapter. But, you know, I urge you to get the book to sort of learn about those kinds of things. Any book that has a back cover filled with complimentary comments about Scott Galloway, followed with, quote, insufferable numbskull, end quote, from Elon Musk, is a book worth reading. We've been having a wonderful time with Scott Galloway. Mountain Money, thanks for joining us, Scott.